This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Bob Hughes is the guest speaker on this message. Well, it is good to be together. The Lord has a tremendous year ahead of us, and uh, it's a thrill to kick into the year together. Uh, Over the last 35 years, let me introduce myself. My name is Bob Hughes. For those who may be guests with us, I'm a part of the pastoral team here. I'm also what's called a bivocational pastor, which means I've got one leg up to the hip in the church life and the other leg up to the hip in the marketplace. I'm a business owner, and uh, so I'm very fortunate. I've got a wonderful leadership team in our business that frees me up to be able to serve the church a lot. So it's it's really, it's really fun. So, uh, But uh, over the last 35 years, somewhere early on as a believer, uh, somebody recommended the whole idea of taking a personal retreat and uh, I hadn't done it. And so uh, between Christmas and New Year's, uh, I, I took some time and I went away and just used that time to pray and seek the Lord and to you know, take a book with me or something, kind of go through my roles, my responsibilities and think you know, how they've been going and you know, thank the Lord where I should and ask for his forgiveness where I should. And uh, so... Uh, the reason I do that, and this will sound really arrogant, is because I want my life to matter. I, I want to live a life that's significant, and, and I think all of us probably do. Um, I think we all want to live a life that is, uh, that's uniquely worthwhile, that, that's a life of impact, a, a, a life of significance. And I know it when, when you hear the word significance in, in our time, the word significance, you think of, you know, a guy who wants to be a big dog or, you know, it's Donald Trump or it's something like that. But, but the historic definition of significance is, is, is really pretty cool. And here, here's what it is. It's to, to signify something, significance, to signify something, to represent something important. Significance is a, a sign or an indicator pointing to something of great value or importance. And we all want to live significant lives, don't we? Well, my premise for our talk today is this, that a significant life is a gospel-centered life. And we're going to take a look at a section of Scripture that I think will really serve us in kicking into 2016 and being able to take a look at what it really means to live a life that is significant from God's perspective. So let's pray real quick, and then uh, we'll jump into God's Word. Lord, I, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the wonderful church that you've given us together Lord, we are really so amazed at uh, what you've done and where we're headed. And uh, we look at ourselves, and it's, it's very obvious that it's all because of your grace. It's all because of your kindness. And when we look back and see all you've done, Lord, all we can do is look forward and smile and think, oh, my gosh, what do you have in store next? And so we give you this year, and uh, we just pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Make us a people of significance, Lord. Make us a people who are rooted and grounded in the gospel. Let it 
permeate every part of our lives. Just ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, my topic is a significant life is a gospel-centered life. And we're going to hit five points together. This is going to be real easy for you note-takers. We're going to hit, number one, a gospel model. Number one, a gospel model. Number two, gospel endurance. Number three, the gospel investment. Number four, gospel consequences. And then finally, my life and the gospel. Number five. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We're going to read together the parable of the minas, which is an amazing uh, story. Look at me when you're there, okay? Luke chapter 19. All right, good. Thanks for engaging with me. Here we go. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to to one who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Have you read that verse lately? That, that, that's one I've got the back row's attention after that verse, right? <laughs> keep, keep your Bibles open uh, if you would, just because I think as we go through things, I'll be able to cover the material quicker if I don't need to read every verse. You can just refer to it as, as we're doing that. Okay, a, a significant life is a gospel-centered life. A significant life is a gospel-centered 
life. Point number one, a gospel model. To begin with, we need to look at the context that frames the parable of the minas. And if, if you just look up from verse 11, you'll see that right before us is the story of Zacchaeus, right? It says, as they heard these things, which brings our attention to the fact that the parable of the minas is actually a continuation of the amazing story of Zacchaeus. They may be still standing at the door of Zacchaeus' house. And we remember the story of Zacchaeus. He's wealthy, right? He's the chief tax collector in Jericho. He's the little guy who, who ran and climbed the sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus. And Jesus looked up, and we know this from, from, uh, from uh, kids' uh, Bible classes. He says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm coming to your house today. We're going to have lunch at your house today. Zacchaeus is a picture of a significant life. He's a gospel model. His life is a sign. His life is an indicator pointing to the power of the gospel and what a gospel-centered life looks like. Zacchaeus is corrupt. He's a swindler willing to do anything that it takes to accumulate wealth. He'll even betray his own people to do it. He's a Jew, but as a chief tax collector, he's in bed with the Romans, and he's paid a handsome percentage on all the taxes that he collects. So guess what? He's a social outcast. He's hated by his own people. So there's really one thing that that matters to him. There's only one thing that really brings Zacchaeus comfort, and that's his money. He loves his money. Yet after an encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus is a radically different person. He gives half of all of his possessions to the poor. That's a lot of money. He was a wealthy dude. Half of his possessions to the poor. He repays those that he has defrauded four times what he owed them, and he defrauded a lot of people. <laughs> okay? Zacchaeus' life is significant. He's assigned to all who knew him. And everybody who paid taxes knew him and hated his guts. His life points to something far greater than his vast wealth. He's a man who was consumed with money, who has now been completely transformed by the gospel. He met Jesus and everything changed. Okay? That's point number one. Point number two, gospel endurance. As we continue with verse 11, we see that there's more to the context uh, yet to understand before we jump into the parable of the minas. And it tells us that he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jericho, where Jesus is, is just 17 miles from the completion of Jesus' journey and the cross. 
And Jesus' inner circle of disciples, the crowds that follow him, and the masses waiting for him in the city all believe that he's the coming Messiah prophesied in the scripture. They've seen or heard about the miracles. They've seen or heard about people being raised from the dead. Jesus has personally referred to himself over and over again as the son of David, the promised descendant of King David who would take the throne and reestablish the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus also repeatedly refers to himself as the son of man, the messianic figure prophesied in Daniel 7, who will stand on the Mount of Olives and the city will be split from his authority. They've all been anticipating this prophetic moment. Jerusalem lies before them. The Passover is only two weeks away. Expectations abound that the kingdom of God is about to appear immediately and they can't wait to see Pilate's faith face when Jesus gets ready to rumble, okay? And Jesus uses the parable of the minas to retune the disciples' expectations about the last days and how quickly God's purposes are going to be accomplished. Jesus' disciples both then And now, right, must realize that the calling of the gospel, the calling to know, to follow, and to proclaim Jesus Christ isn't a quick sprint to glory, but it's a lifelong marathon of devotion, faithfulness, and endurance. Okay, so now let's get into the parable. Verse 12. He said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Terms like nobleman and kingdom they don't, they don't make a lot of sense to us today, do they? But to Jesus' listeners, this parable is highly relevant. In fact, it's, it's a story right out of the front headlines of the paper. It's the story of Archelaus. And you may not know of Archelaus, but he was the son of Herod the Great, who inherited half of Herod's kingdom when he died, and his palace was up on the hill in Jericho. They may have been able to look up and see it from where the conversation was happening here. Only Caesar Augustus could bestow the title of king or rex on anyone. So Archelaus gathered his immediate family, his buddies, his political allies, and they all joined him traveling through the Mediterranean to, to go to Rome and to appeal to Caesar for the title king. And Archelaus had just one problem. The people of his provinces hated his guts. He was cruel. He was incompetent. At one point, 
in a vendetta to get even with his adversaries, he slaughtered 3,000 Jews and threw their dead bodies into the temple. He's not a real nice guy, okay? And so as Archelaus is going to Rome to receive a kingdom, there's also another delegation of citizens who immediately set sail for Rome, hoping to beat him to Caesar and to persuade Caesar not to crown Archelaus king. Now, there's a lot more to this story, um, but time is, is not our friend. But look, look up Archelaus. I think you'll find it very, very interesting. But th- this parable has a surprising twist to it because the story isn't really about Archelaus at all, though the people think that it is. Jesus is a brilliant storyteller and he knows how to hook everybody. The story isn't about Archelaus, the wannabe king. It's the story of Jesus, the true and the good king. And Jesus brilliantly uses the story to to draw in the ear of those that are there and also to correct his disciples' expectations again of the idea of an immediate kingdom with this allegory, which is really the story of Jesus' own life. It's a parable about the one true king, Jesus himself. The story of his life, his death, his resurrection. The story of the commission entrusted to his servants. His ascension and the faithful endurance required by his servants. And then ultimately his return and the accounting that would take place with him among his servants, whether they had been faithful with what they'd been entrusted with. The parable is the story of Jesus' kingship, but it's also the story of what's expected from his disciples between the time of the ascension and his return to earth and the endurance that's required in the process. That was point two. Point three is the gospel investment. The gospel investment. The parable of the minas here in Luke 19 can be easily confused with the parable of the talents. And if we're not careful, we can think that they're both kind of the same or you know, with a, a brief overview. There are certainly similar stories with similar rhythms, some similar themes, but there are some critical differences that are really important for us to understand. First of all, in the parable of the minas, the king calls 10 servants and gives one mina to each of the 10 servants. A a mina isn't very much money. It's approximately three months worth of wages for an average worker. And each servant receives the exact same sum to steward until the king returns. In the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, a man calls his servants and he gives varied amounts of money to each of the servants, each according to their unique abilities. And a talent was a vast sum of money, a lot of money. A talent 
represented as much as 20 years of labor. It's a lot of money. And each servant received varied amounts to steward until the master returned, okay? Our modern culture values the significance of the individual, doesn't it? And so I think that our propensity is to understand the parable of the talents a lot more quickly than we understand what's going to be the main point of the the parable of the minas. We understand that we're all different and unique, right? Just look around the room. Look up here. Weirdest person in the room. Okay? We're all different and unique. We understand that each of us have different gifts and different abilities that God's invested in us. And it's, it's interesting how even the word talent, which had its original meaning as a sum of money, has now been transported into the English language as a reference to our unique skills and individual abilities, right? The whole point of the parable is that our talents really matter to God and to others, and that God's entrusted each of us with unique abilities to accomplish important stewardships that God's given to us, right? We have, we, each of us have unique areas of knowledge, unique areas of wisdom and insights, discernments, unique relationships, unique spheres of influence. Every one of us has a very unique circle of friends. We have unique opportunities. The Lord has sovereignly placed us in different places around the city, and we have very unique opportunities. We each have unique financial resources and other kinds of resources that God's entrusted to us to use for his glory and the good of others. We have unique spiritual gifts. You throw that into the equation, which the Holy Spirit gives to encourage his people and impact the world. And these are all God-given stewardships to be leveraged for God's glory in the good of others. But the parable of the minas is, very, is a very different message than the parable of the talents. And it's critical for us to understand. Okay? I, honestly, I've, I've been a Christian for 35 years or somewhere in there. I forgot. I'm so old. Okay? I've read the parable of the minas a lot of times. I've taught it a bunch. And I've missed it. I've missed what the whole point is. So let's pay attention and let's get the point together, okay? Because obviously if I can miss it, you can miss it too, right? Okay, let's look at verse 13 again. It says, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. It tells us that the king gave one mina to each servant equally. One mina to each servant equally. Which leads to a critical insight that, here we go. This is the bullseye. Are you ready? There is one unique investment that every disciple has been equally given. There is one unique investment from God that each disciple of Jesus Christ has been equally given. And what's the investment? The investment's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the most important thing 
in the world. It's the good news of Jesus. And, and we're all different in a million ways. But each of us has been given one primary God-given investment that must inform everything about who we are and what matters in life. We've each been given one priority that should determine how we're going to steward our time, our treasures, and our talents. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted by God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2 says this, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. What, honestly, what, a, what an honor. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing stewardship to be entrusted with the, the eternal message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a responsibility. And so, can I ask a question? Okay. Are you aware that you have been entrusted with the gospel? You have been entrusted with the gospel by the Lord himself. Every disciple has been entrusted with the same eternal investment capital. The same. Are you aware that God has given you and me the exact same investment that he gave to Peter? The same, exact same investment that he gave to the Apostle Paul, to Martin Luther, to Calvin, to, uh, who are your heroes? Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon. You and I have been given the exact same deposit, the exact same investment to steward. We've all received the same gospel power to transform our personal lives, right? We've all received the same gospel story to be shared with all of the relationships in our lives. We've all received the same gospel command from Jesus to put his investment to work, to multiply God's eternal capital and to steward this investment of the gospel until Jesus returns. Point number four, gospel consequences. Like the servants in the parable of the minas, there will be a day when Jesus will give each of us a performance evaluation. Have you ever had a performance evaluation? The big one is still coming. Each of us will give an account for the return that we've made on the investment of the gospel that's been entrusted to us. 
And this truth, this is the Word of God. This is what Jesus said will happen, and this is what will happen. This is the truth. This is God's Word to us. Like the parable in verse 15 says, Jesus himself will return to earth having received his kingdom and he will call his disciples to himself that he may know what they had gained from his gospel investment in them. And there's a couple of really important things that I hope are clear to all of us in this parable. Here's one. You don't want to be among the king's enemies, right? You don't want to be among those who said, I don't want you to rule over me. You don't want to be that guy, okay? Uh, Verse 27, I'm not not even going to read it. You look at it. I don't even want to read it again. It's one of the most terrifying verses, I think, in the whole Bible. But look at it and let it... Let it affect you in terms of the way you care about the people in your life who aren't ready for that day. That day is reality, and it needs to affect us so that we'll prepare ourselves to love and serve people and build the bridges that we've got to build in order to be able to bring the message so they're ready for that day. Uh, it's an amazing thing to think that there could be anybody who would hate Jesus and say, I don't want him to rule over me. But sadly, all you have to do is flip the page and see what happens as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And the guys who are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the next day are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want him. uh, uh, You know, we're loyal to Caesar. Crucify him. And so in the same way that there are those who cried out for his crucifixion at the Passover, uh, there's those who have hated him and hated his followers for every generation. And that's the way that it's going to be with us as well. Jesus is both the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, and he's the Lion of Judah who will bring his perfect holy judgment on that day. To reject Jesus is to reject his kingdom. And there's no room in his kingdom for people that don't submit to him as king. So you don't want to be that guy. And you don't want to be the the wicked servant either. I'll give you a clue. Um, Verse 20 and 21 says, another came. The king doesn't even call the guy by name. He just says, another. You don't want to be the another guy. Another came. The the wicked servant rationalizes his his laziness by slandering the king's good character, doesn't he? I mean, isn't that the way it's always been? If you love your sin, then you've got to find, you know, if your morality is compromised, your, your mind jumps right in there to find some way to rationalize it. And there's some flaw with God. There's some flaw with the gospel. We're excellent at that, aren't we? But it's terrifying. And, and how ironic here that he keeps the king's investment in his handkerchief the, the wicked servant has such a low view of the king's investment, such a low view of the precious gospel of Jesus that he keeps it in, in a, a handkerchief. The literal description of the handkerchief is a sweat rag. 
He keeps it in a sweat rag when he should have been using the rag to wipe his brow as he worked in putting the king's precious investment to work. And, and it's, it's hard to know what to do with this guy theologically. Who is this guy? Is he, a, is he just an unbeliever who somehow is, you know, somehow sitting in church and thinks that he's attending stuff and that everything's good? Or is, is he an unbeliever? I mean, I, I sure don't want to be the kind of believer that, that you got to go through a quandary to try and figure out, you know, is he a believer? Is he not? I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, we all hope so. But what, what, what's his life show? What, what's his witness? And there, there's two common errors that, that we can be tempted to fall into when it comes to our whole understanding of, of being right with God and being justified. And the first error is this, that we can be saved somehow by our good works. And of course, that's nonsense. There's no, you know, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's no way that we're going to earn our way into heaven. We know that, that the gospel is God's kindness to us. It's grace alone through faith alone, not by works of righteousness so that any man would boast. And so it's such a, an obvious error that somehow I can be a good guy. I can do some good stuff and I'm going to earn my way to heaven. Not going to happen. But there's a second error that is equally deceptive. And here it is. You ready? It's that you can be saved without works. That you can be saved without, without works, without evidence, without fruit. That, some, that, that there's this kind of believing that doesn't transform our lives, that doesn't bring a Zacchaeus event that turns us from the guy whose identity is tied to his money to a guy who gives it all away because he sees something eternal and precious. That's the only kind of belief that there is. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't change. It's impossible because Christianity is supernatural. Christianity, to be born again, we're born again by the Spirit of God. It's God's work. It isn't something that we muscle our way through and somehow you know, develop self-control after we become a believer. Nonsense. It's a supernatural work from a supernatural seed that's been sown in us by the Spirit of God. And it's impossible not to change if you're the genuine article. It's impossible. You will change. You must change. And there's an old Puritan saying, and they would say this, they'd say, we're saved by, uh, we're saved by faith alone. Excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry here. We're saved by, it's, it's, a little, it's a little word tricky the way it goes. We're saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. Can I say that one more time? We're saved by faith alone, by grace alone. It's the work of God, not something we do. But saving faith is never alone. There's always fruit. There's always change. There's always good works that follow it. Because Jesus has taken up the throne of our lives. Because Jesus lives here and he's directing things and he, he does things real different. 
right? There's always good works that accompany those who are alive in Christ. Ephesians 2, familiar verse for all of us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man should boast. So you've got the first part of it. We've got salvation by grace. But now here comes the, here comes the, uh, the fruit that's going to follow. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should be walking in, that we should be walking in. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us uh, that our works will be tested by fire. So when I think about this guy, is he a believer? Is he an unbeliever? Here's what 1 Corinthians 3 says. It says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. And I, I, I hope that the wicked servant is that guy. I hope so, because at least he gets in. But man, I, I don't know. Is that, is that the way you want to finish out? <laughs> we get in, you know, but as through the fire? Just by the skin of our teeth, man. Uh, thank God for his grace, because ultimately none of us get in. This is, all, this is all, everything I'm talking about in terms of works has absolutely nothing to do with being born again by the grace of God in Jesus. I'm talking about the fruit that follows, okay? Now let's look at the other two servants. This is amazing. Verses 16 through 19. Look at the response of the first servant as he gives an account to the king. He says, Lord, your mina has made 10 minus more. What an interesting response. You would expect him to say, look what I did. I produced 10 more minus for you. What do I get? But no, he, first of all, he acknowledges the king. He acknowledges where the investment comes from. It's, it's the king's mina, right? It's the Lord's gospel that's been invested in him. And he calls, he calls him Lord. He honors him as the king, as the, the master. And he acknowledges that the power to earn is in the mina. The power to earn is in the mina. It's not in the servant. And the power, of, the power is in the gospel. The power is not in those of us who share it. It's God's power. It's something that's impossible for us, but we can share it, and the supernatural work of God goes into, into play as people hear the gospel because God works through it. The second servant responds the same way. He says, Lord, your mina made five minas more. How wonderful. Again, it's, it's the Lord's mina. It's the mina that's at work and not the servant. And in Colossians 3, Paul says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. What a wonderful statement. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day that you heard and truly understood God's grace. How wonderful that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is where the power is. Paul says in Romans 1, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation of anyone who believe. What a wonderful gift. What an investment God's given us. And then look at the king's response to his faithful servants. To the first, he says, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you have now authority over 10 cities. To the second, he says, you, you've got oversight of five cities. Now, how, how amazingly generous God's rewards are. How amazingly generous he is to his servants. How disproportionate his reward is to what the servants had actually done. Ten minas become ten cities. Five minus five cities. What amazing grace. How beautiful. But, but the parable, this parable is not just a cute story. This is a parable about ultimate reality. This is a story about the real king, Jesus Christ. It's the story about a real investment that's been entrusted to you and me. It's about a real return of the king of kings and the Lord of lords and real accountability that's going to be asked of the faithful and a real transformation of the heavens and the earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will reign. And the, the thing that is so amazing about all this, you know, sometimes you ask people, what, what do you look forward to uh, when you go to heaven? I don't know if you've ever asked anybody that. I, I have asked people that before. Sometimes you can hear, oh, I just can't wait to see Aunt Betty. I can't wait to see my husband. I can't wait to see my wife, obviously, beautiful. I can't wait to see the streets of gold. I can't wait. But come on. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see him face to face. And he's going to be at the center of everything. And so all of the rewards, the thing that is so beautiful about the reward of the cities... The cities are not the important thing. The, the thing that's important is, that, is the amazing joy of an elevated relationship with Jesus in close association as co-regents, as, as viceroys and co-rulers with him as he continues to, to extend his glory throughout eternity. And anybody who's ever worked in a team, if you've ever, I mean, my experience is I've, I've, I've worked in business leadership teams, pastoral leadership, leadership teams. There, there, there are, doing a job is one thing, but when there is collaboration and when there's relationships and when you join arms with your friends and dig in on something, it's intoxicating. That's what the fun is. When I, when I, after I had pastored for 10 years and I returned to the, the marketplace, the thing that was the hardest deal, it wasn't hard that I didn't have a pastor badge, I could care less. But, uh, I mean, I care, excuse me, I care. I care. I, so, I care a, a bit. But 
the thing that, was, that I really miss is I miss being with my friends, planning and strategizing and praying and getting God's heart. And can you imagine that we get to do that with Jesus? That we get to strategize with him, that we get, that there's something about the rewards that the faithful receive that moves us into deeper intimacy with the one that we want to spend time with, right? Can you, can you imagine? It's, it's ultimately not about white robes and crowns, but, but greater intimacy and access and relationship with Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. Our, our coming king. And, and it's important to note, there isn't anything mentioned in this entire parable about outgoing personalities or certain kind of gifting or um, confidence to talk in front of people. doesn't say anything about that. Everyone has received the exact same investment from the Lord. And we've got to be careful. We can't shirk our responsibilities by saying, hey, I'm not evangelistically wired, right? Few people are, thank God. Those are the weirdest people. No, No, I love them, but, but they're weird, right? But you're weird in different ways, okay? It's not about us. It's not about our abilities. It's about the power of the gospel and our faithfulness to do what God's told us to do and to put God's investment to work in our lives. Okay, number five. My life and the gospel. There can be a real temptation in hearing, going through a parable like this and hearing a clear call to gospel stewardship to swing the pendulum to extremes. So as we all head out, I'm going to give everybody a fresh track pack. And you're going to be able to take that thing out and you're going to be able to buttonhole all your neighbors and you're going to be able to buttonhole. You can go in and when your boss wants to have a review with you, you can just say, well, wait a minute. Before we do that, I want to talk to you about Jesus, my friend. We could just offend all kinds of people. We don't want to swing to not. Now, I'm grateful for all those kind of people. I, I have been that guy, okay? I don't want to be that guy anymore because I want to be effective. And if you want to be effective, there's one thing that has to happen. You, you want to know what has to happen? Well, two things have to happen. Number one, God's got to be at work because nobody comes to the Father unless the Father leads him. Secondly, you have to have relationships. You've got to have relationships. You do a survey, all the people who come to the Lord, 90 what percent? The overwhelming majority. How many people come through gospel TV? Zilch. How many people come through, I mean, not very many. There's one or two. They've got those testimonies. You'll hear about them as you turn on the TV. But percentage-wise, it ain't much. All of the evangelistic crusades, not much. All of the figure out whatever your event, you know, all of the gospel balloons that they fly over and drop tracks on the city, or all of the Christian music, or all of that zilch. It's all family member, personal friend. 
95, 96%. Family member, personal friend. Which means we have to build friendships. We have to build friendships with people who don't know the Lord because we've been entrusted with the gospel. And you've been entrusted with it. I've been entrusted with it, and you've been entrusted with it. Every one of you. You have been entrusted with the gospel. I don't mean to point at you, but I want, you, I want, I want, to, make, I want to make a point by pointing. You. You are entrusted with the gospel. And we can't dodge it because of a certain personality or, or anything else. Finally, my life and the gospel. The temptation is to hear this and to get wacky, okay? We have to remember that our stewardship to the gospel is not only about proclamation, but the power of the gospel is like a fountain. I'm from Chicago, and there's a gorgeous fountain uh, right along Lake Michigan. It's called Buckingham Fountain. It's, it's a gorgeous fountain. And it is, there's a huge chute that's right at the center of that thing, goes way up in the sky. And then there's multiple tiers where the water comes down and it overflows. It, the, the fountain fills up at the top and it overflows into the next tier. And that thing fills up and it overflows into the next. And then there's chutes from each of the lower tiers that, that shoot back into the center part of the fountain again. And it's just a picture of the gospel. We begin, we begin with Jesus. The gospel is Jesus Christ. It's knowing Jesus Christ. It's not believing a certain doctrine. It's knowing Jesus Christ. He's the fountainhead. He's the center of everything. Everything shoots and overflows from him. And if we aren't going to the center, there there isn't anything going to happen. But if we go to him, knowing Jesus will begin to change us. The things that we've loved, like Zacchaeus, the money we've loved, or the stuff we've loved, or the power, or the position, or the, the, you know, whatever our identity is, as we draw close to Jesus, all of that nonsense begins to fall away. And our hearts begin to change, where the stuff that we love changes. Our affections begin to change and we begin to love and care about the things that Jesus loves and cares about because he's changing us as we're with him, as we behold him, as we meet with him, as his word renews our mind, as his spirit transforms our inner man, as we learn how to live in Christ, drawing close to him and listening to him. And my desires begin to change and and I start to make changes in my decision. The, the, the tear overflows into the next level of the fountain and, and I start to turn off the TV or the radio and I, the stuff that I used to read or the stuff that I used to just play and spend my time doing. I, there's just a, there's a, new, there's a new interest. There's a new power. It, it isn't self-control. It's, it's God. It's God changing me. It's the Spirit of God renewing me from the inside out. And, and I begin to do things different. And, and peop, 
I, I begin to notice people in a way that I didn't before, where life had always been about me. The storyline was always about me. And when I thought about what was going on or whatever the event was, I somehow imagined, you know, that it was really, I was at the center of everything. Things begin to change. Where we begin to get a heart for other people. and We begin to take initiative to do different things. And the money that I used to just spend on me and my friends and my sports and my interests, I begin to, there, there's a we begin to change where there's, there's an adventurism. We want to, want to give and want to sow and want to be a part of something outside of myself. I'm, we're free. I'm becoming free of myself so I can give my life for the glory of God and the good of other people. And, and it, it continues to overflow. The tears fill and it affects my marriage. I begin to take initiative to care for my wife and notice she's actually there. Oh, you live here too? You know, begin to begin to care for my wife. I begin to, I'm free from myself where I can begin to invest in my kids. I can start to take care of the stuff that the Lord's given to me, the money and stuff. I begin to see it in a different way and begin to manage it for his glory. My, my, my paradigm is changing, my worldview. I've been given new glasses. And the ripple effect of that is my kids are happy and my wife actually smiles in public and uh, things begin to change, and my friends and my neighbors, they start to ask me questions. I start to become a different employee. I start to think, how do, how, do I, how do I serve this organization? How can I serve my boss? How can I make him effective? What are the things that we could do around here that, better, that would be better? And I can do it for your glory, Lord, and really serve our team here. And we begin to, to, the power of God, the overflow of the fountainhead of Jesus Christ begins to, to flow and ripple and penetrate into every area of our lives. And guess what? All that leads to real relationships with real people. So we don't just, you know... Here's something for you. Maybe you'll read it someday. No, these are our friends. These are people we have in our homes where we go out and have lunch together. We go out and get a cheeseburger. We watch the ball game. We go have a cold one. We, we're friends. We're friends because we've been entrusted with the gospel and we're not called to live for ourselves. We're called to follow our Savior Jesus who came to give his life for the lost to give his life for those who need him, to live for what's eternal, to live for that day when we get to hear the well done, good and faithful servant. Don't, don't you want to live for that? You don't want to live. We want to live a significant life, don't we? Significant life is a gospel-centered life. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.